The future of teaching reflects a lot about what the future of work and the future of learning looks like. It's more and more agnostic of geography, language, time zone. The alternatives to kind of formal tracks are, are breaking. The academic calendar is breaking. and welcome back to Cast Teacherly. I'm your host, Asha Matani, and on today's episode of Cast Teacherly, we are welcoming Sara Lee, advisor and head of New Ventures with Adventures Capital Group and EdTech Venture Partner with Peak State Ventures. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sara. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. It's so good to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your history within the education industry. Okay. Well, education has been something that I've been working in for about 16, 17 years now. And it's definitely been a meandering path. I think it, it only makes sense in hindsight, but when I was going through it, there were some really exciting times and also some very challenging decisions that I made along the way. But I would say for the most part, I'm currently at a venture fund where I invest in ed tech companies, future of work companies. Right. However, I spent about 15, 16 years operating companies, helping to start schools and programs around the world. Okay. And so what was something you did before you went into venture capital? So the first job that I got in education was at a group called the KIPP Foundation. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're an American nonprofit organization that opens charter schools across the United States. Okay. That was my first job after kind of my corporate life. And I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life. But essentially, at the time, there were about a dozen schools across the U.S., starting with fifth grade, opening charter middle schools. The idea was that we were opening charter schools in very high-need communities and using fifth grade as a starting point to make sure that graduation rates for underserved populations increased. The focus was on fifth grade because if you kind of started at freshman year of high school, it was a little bit too late. You know, you couldn't have as much impact as you wanted. So we started earlier. And my job was to help figure out how to open these schools at scale. How do we open 50 schools in the United States? And in the U.S. with charter schools, you take on the burden of the hiring, the operations, the procurement The stuff that normally the Ministry of Education or the school district manages, you now take on as an organization. So that means you have much larger operational need. So yeah, we were dealing with real estate and procurement and buying pencils and hiring and accounting systems and things like that. Yeah, all the itty bitty stuff. The unsexy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And then what did you do after? How did you kind of lead your way into venture capital? Oh boy, it's a bit of a long answer. I hope that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. That's completely fine. (laughs) Right. Okay. So after KIPP, I went to greatschools.org, which was led by Bill Jackson and someone that I very much admire and still consider a mentor. Essentially, what he was doing is saying, look, K-12 public school data is actually free and available, but it's incredibly difficult to interpret for policymakers, let alone teachers, let alone parents. So he wanted to take that publicly available data on all of the statistics of public schools in the U.S., K-12, 
and make it a commodity, make them easy to interpret. So that's the genesis of great schools. I joined the team there to help figure out, you know, we got to a point where the organization was getting 2 million views a month at that time was significant. So how do we, you know, increase that community? Is there a way to monetize those eyeballs so that our nonprofit could also generate some revenue to kind of balance out the need to be 100% reliant on philanthropy? So that was great schools. Then I spent a big chunk of time in China where I started an education business, a tutoring business. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it happened to grow really fast. We did quite well. We sold the business and stayed in China, worked on a couple of other international education projects, like trying to blend East and West thinking. Oh, wow. I spent a year as a Fulbright teacher in Taiwan. I was living in this crazy fishing village and trying to teach. And it was really, really challenging. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. (laughs) So yeah, after China, I came back, went to grad school, uh, worked a little bit in higher education, because I thought maybe the place where I can have the most impact is with the future leaders. And we need more leaders to come into education and, you know, help make change, help see things differently. And it turns out that that was a fantastic experience, but a little bit bureaucratic. And so this was also the same time that ed tech was kind of taking off and people were really thinking about how do we use technology? There were entrepreneurs popping up around the world. And because I had this kind of tiny early experience with operating education companies outside of the US, I became an advisor and I started to help them make some of the decisions that you know, I made incorrectly in my own path. And that basically led me to the startup world that's focused entirely on education. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So you've been kind of everywhere. I've been a little everywhere. Yeah, (laughs) I would say, you know, I've seen a little bit of the whole education spectrum from early childhood through higher ed. It's been an interesting ride. Yeah, I can imagine. And that was kind of my following question was, what were some of the things you did within higher education? Were you a teacher or did you work in more of the organizational side of it? So when I was in grad school, I went to the Harvard Ed School. One of the jobs that I had while I was a student was to sit on the admissions committee for Harvard Law. And so it was a super interesting year to kind of be on the, I guess, gatekeeper side and read these applications from incredibly brilliant people and help make a decision, help score and give them a kind of point system about who should come into, you know, the best law school in the world. So that was super interesting. I also helped them create a framework for how to read or evaluate applicants coming to Harvard Law from around the world. They were getting a huge increase in international applicants wanting an American legal education, but they didn't know how to interpret, you know, this candidate in Canada versus Russia versus China. How do we and equalize it? We developed a framework for that. I spent a year as a career coach at Stanford Business School. Oh, wow. That was exciting. I mean, these guys don't need career coaching, right? They're the smartest and brightest. <laughs> <laughs> you would think so. <laughs> they're at Stanford. <laughs> and they're at Stanford Business School in Silicon Valley, right? But the truth is, you know, when you have an abundance of choices, it actually really forces you to think a lot about what your your value system is, how do you make choices, what's important to you. You can kind of, there's a very famous Stanford course called Designing Your Life. You can design your career. 
so we took it from a perspective of not like, how do you get a job, but like, what do you want your life to be? And what purpose do you have? What drives you? So those conversations were really rewarding. Yeah. And is that kind of similar to what you do now with entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I think in some ways, you know, being an entrepreneur is one of the loneliest jobs. It's incredibly risky. Personally, it's really hard. You put a lot on the line and you're constantly putting yourself out there and ideas that are new and different for judgment. And people put values on you, they push you, and that's, that's meant to be part of the growth process. But yes, I would say working with founders is a lot like that too. It's kind of how do we, yeah. how do we move forward? How, we, how do we take your ambition and figure out how to grow your business? Yeah. And speaking of businesses, uh, what are some of the companies or some of the ed techs that you're currently working with that you're particularly excited by these days? Oh, gosh, there's so many. <laughs> I can't reveal all of my cards, but um, of course, I, I'm a huge fan of Teacherly, genuinely. <laughs> Thank you. That's so lovely of you to say. No, really. I mean, I think the fact that educators have to cobble together tools to be a professional in the 21st century is just 100% unacceptable. Yeah. And and I think there's not a lot of ed techs that do just solely focus on the teacher, at least from what I've seen so far. I'm not sure about your experience, which I'm sure is a lot more, but I haven't seen that many ed techs that just solely focus on you as a teacher, as an educator. That's 100% true. I don't see them. I see a lot yeah. of things focused right now on the consumer. So parents, you can pay out of pocket. A lot of things yeah. are focused on the people who hold the budgets in universities or school districts, you know, administrators, yeah. a lot of things designed for the student experience, but really education rests on the shoulders of teachers and we're not yeah, giving them what true. they need to be exceptional, to reach their full potential as teachers. And that's just, I think it's catching up to us right now with COVID. Uh, yeah, uh, 100%. Like, I think like, the amount of teachers that I've seen already in the academic year of 2020, which is only one month in, and they're already so tired, so overwhelmed, so fatigued. And it's crazy to think that like the world around us, the economy around us is changing. The nature of work is changing, but yet that one profession has just kind of stayed the same. We still have the whiteboard. We still have the teacher. I feel like teachers just frown upon using technology because it's like another thing for them to stress about. It's another thing for them to worry about. Oh, we have to implement this. We have to use this. We're not making it easy for them to use it. That's, I think, one of the big problems is that anytime there's some kind of mandate from the district or whatever to use a new technology or new platform or LMS, it's such a cumbersome thing. It takes, you know, all of this time and energy to learn how to use it. You have to input all of this data or whatever. It doesn't work with all 10 of your other apps that you've got in your classroom. True. <laughs> it doesn't genuinely make your life easier. And it doesn't facilitate the community and the collaboration that I think Teacherly does. You know, that's just crazy. Yeah, it, it really is. There's so much out there and it's all just so overwhelming, but helpful kind of at the same time. Yeah, I agree. I think that that the teaching profession is really undergoing a time in the spotlight that is unprecedented. And I think we've got to take full advantage of it to really say, now you have just a tiny sense of what it's like to do this work and have this career. And the amount of dignity that educators necessitate is kind of, people are realizing it. Investors are realizing it. Parents are acknowledging it. 
I think the general public and you know it's about time absolutely and and to you what do you think the future of teaching will look like oh gosh that's interesting <laughs> I think um, if we kind of step back a little bit the future of teaching reflects a lot about what the future of work and the future of learning looks like absolutely I think that it's more and more agnostic of geography of language of time zone the alternatives to kind of formal tracks are are breaking the academic calendar is breaking you know we just invested in a company called Sora Schools that is a 100% virtual high school oh, wow and i think those ideas are going to continue to increase that with the family unit having more flexibility about the kind of work and the way they work increases so will parents want their children to also have that similar parallel flexibility with their education. Yeah. And do you think edtech plays quite a significant role in that? Or do you think that's more about the curriculum and the physical structure of schools and how that changes? I think that it's honestly with, with something like education, with so many stakeholders and so much nuance and bureaucracy, that it literally takes all of the above to happen at the same time. That we're yeah. in this really unusual time where we have the tools and technology to enable this. There's a shift happening in the place of work and employment. There's an awareness on the side of policymakers and administrators. Yeah. So in fact, all of these things have to happen to be able to truly enable that to happen at scale. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of working in harmony for everything to kind of be one big revolution. I think so. At least, at least yeah. for for you know a good number of students around the world. Yeah. And so, at present, what do you think are some of the other significant ways edtech is kind of impacting schools and school groups? That's a good question. There's a number of things that are happening with technology in education across the board, from early right. childhood all the way through adult learning and how we learn in corporations. But I think one of the things that is most interesting is how democratizing it can be, technology can be to creating access for different populations. Yeah, very true. And I think that's super interesting. I mean, one of the things that Teacherly does is you don't just have to work with your colleagues within your school or even in your department. You can collaborate yeah, right. with a teacher anywhere in the world. Just yeah. like, you know, I can collaborate with any investor around the world, and I do. Um, but that's so much harder yeah. for teachers to do. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity. It's also happening for students. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more global connections happening now, I feel like, with the pandemic. Like, I wonder if I would have had the opportunity to talk to you had we not have this technology like Zoom. Exactly. Exactly. There's this really cool company called yeah. PenPal Schools that does student collaboration on projects. And oh, wow. I think that's an example of kind of content that is agnostic of geography. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this circles a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier about how, like, for me, my experience with my higher education was very mm -hmm. restrictive in nature. And luckily for me, I do, I have traveled, I do have a bit of a multicultural background, but for students who aren't able to travel as much, they're quite restricted in their mindsets. Like they don't see other ways students learn are kind of like other content as well. Yeah. I mean, another big thing is cost is the, yeah. and this is particularly true. Speaking of your higher education experience, 
it's no longer true that you need to pay thirty, forty thousand dollars or more yeah. for over four years for a college education, fifty grand yeah, per year. Um, there's a lot yeah. of different ways. You know, you can kind of spend a year coding and then do a two-year degree program, or just go directly to work, or apprentice, or you know, the choices after high school are diversifying, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I think, I mean, I only hope with the diversity comes more of like acceptance because I know when I finished school, it wasn't very normal to take a gap year or to do anything other than to go to university. So I feel like a part of me just kind of went with it because I had to. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So before we end things, because we're almost out of time, I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's how can school leaders or district leaders go about a better and different way in selecting their ed tech products for their school? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. (laughs) I actually think that those decisions really have to come from the teachers themselves, the people who use them. If you're not kind of weighing heavily exactly who's going to be executing and implementing these tools, then that seems to be a misstep. So things that have really great adoption from teachers themselves organically are really exciting to us from a business perspective. And ultimately they should be for administrators who are selecting these tools and products. Yeah, absolutely. Needs to be them. They're the ones who are using it. Yes. Hello. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for today. But thank you so much for joining us and enlightening me as well as all of our listeners today. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to have you. It was a pleasure chatting with you too. Thank you. And a big thank you to all of our listeners who have tuned in on this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to us and check out all the cool things Teacherly as an edtech does for our teaching workforce on www.teacherly.io.